Welcome back to the Brief Premium's fortnightly podcast. Soon we'll be joined by three senior lawyers from each of the main national political parties. They will make the case for how the rule of law and lawyers will benefit from their party's general election manifestos and no doubt tear lumps out of the opposition's commitments. Also, Jonathan Fisher QC, Times Law most recent Lawyer of the Week, will discuss the landmark High Court ruling on legal privilege in fraud investigations. He acted for the Serious Fraud Office in what was a big win for the corruption busters. But first, a whirlwind roundup of the important law stories over the last few days. Lawyers for the parents of Charlie Gard spent the weekend preparing to take the traumatic case of the nine-month-old child to the Supreme Court. At the end of last week, the Court of Appeal upheld an earlier ruling that Charlie's medical condition was hopeless and that doctors at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London should switch off his life support system. The parents are now waiting to see if they are granted leave to go to the Supreme Court. Senior criminal law barristers stepped up their campaign for more resources for the Crown Court. The QC head of the Criminal Bar Association, Francis Fitzgibbon, claimed that sexual offences trials are being delayed because of a lack of investment that is bringing the justice system to its knees. Meanwhile, women lawyers are particularly up in arms over proposals to institute a programme of late-night court openings. Never mind Crown Court cases, the entire justice system is in the grip of a perilous downward spiral, claimed a former Lord Chancellor, Lord Falconer, who was not only Tony Blair's man on the woolsack, but also his former flatmate. He said in an exclusive article for Brief Premium that the country desperately needs a new Justice Secretary who will command the respect of lawyers and judges. Staying with the bench, diversity campaigners welcome the appointment of seven women to what is the first rung of the High Court Judiciary. Justine Thornton QC, the wife of former Labour leader Ed Miliband, was one of the recent appointees to the position of Deputy High Court Judge. White-collar crime specialist lawyers were far less happy. Indeed, they were almost universally critical of the Conservative Party election manifesto's pledge to wind up the serious fraud office and place its responsibilities under the ambit of its much younger sibling, the National Crime Agency. They were joined by a former SFO director, Rosalind Wright QC, who told the brief that the move would be a green light to, quote, fraudsters, international swindlers, cheats and money launderers. Lawyers also called for wholesale reform of the health service's approach to whistleblowers and its disciplinary procedures. The campaign was given fresh impetus after the Department of Health announced just before the election purder that it would investigate the circumstances around the suicide of a nurse who blew the whistle on allegations of poor clinical practice at the Imperial College Healthcare Trust in London. Two landmark commercial cases were heard over the last few days. It appears as though the nation will be denied the spectacle of Fred the Shred, Goodwin, giving evidence in the Royal Bank of Scotland shareholder action. Claimants are understood to be on the verge of a settlement with the bank. And Deliveroo, the friend to lazy dinner party hosts, was forced to defend before a tribunal its contracts with delivery riders. And Lord Newberger, the President of the Supreme Court, says that a mandatory retirement age of 70 for senior judges will cause a dearth of talent at the top bench. And finally, lawyers provided a small beacon of humanity in the aftermath of the devastating terror bombing in Manchester last week. Nearly 200 solicitors' firms and barristers' chambers joined an initiative to offer victims of the attack and their families free legal advice. The election draws ever closer 
And legal affairs are at the heart of any general election, really, and at the heart of any parliament. And today with us in the studio are two of the representatives of three of the main political parties. We have uh, with us Anthony Spate, QC, Chairman of uh, Research at the Society of Conservative Lawyers. He's also a civil commercial barrister at Four Pump Court in the Temple. Also in the studio with us is James Sandback, who is the Liberal Democrat parliamentary candidate for the constituency of Suffolk Coastal. He is also the policy secretary for the Liberal Democrat lawyers and currently works for a range of advice and legal advocacy charities. On the line, uh, on the phone line, is John Cooper, who, uh, John Cooper QC. John Cooper QC of 25 Bedford Road Chambers in London. He's currently uh, not with us in the studio, I'm afraid, because he's doing what barristers do, which is appearing in a trial in Leeds. And he is also an advisor to the Access to Justice Commission, which is chaired by Lord Bark Labour's former Shadow Attorney General. The subject really we'd like to kick off with is the party manifestos be very helpful if we could sort of get stuck into a little bit of legal affairs. I think the opening question to you, Anthony, as you're here to represent the party that uh, was in government and is uh, hoping to be returned to government, what is it about the Conservative Party manifesto that is good for lawyers and good for the rule of law? I, I, I would be sad if that was regarded as too much of a party political battleground. Uh, the law is a fundamental mechanism in our society which all believers in democratic systems um, uh, have essentially the same commitment to. Uh, the area of legal affairs which has been most politically sensitive in recent years has been human rights. Uh, I'm pleased that that seems no longer to be the case. Um, it's not been raised at all that I've noticed in this election campaign. I think the Conservative manifesto is in just the right place on this. That is to say, firstly, making it clear that uh, we are in favour of remaining in the European Convention of Human Rights, which I support as a matter of my identity and essential political beliefs, as well as uh, on grounds of foreign policy. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, saying that when the Brexit process and constitutional changes have been run through, we will look again at the human rights framework. And there are lots of reasons why that will be necessary. Um, one is because of the constitutional changes within the UK, relations with Scotland in particular. Another is that the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights will have gone, and maybe we'd like to keep some features of it. I welcome the fact that the manifesto has picked out the importance of legal services as an export. Uh, it's uh, a valuable role of the legal profession for the country as a whole, and especially important in the context of Brexit. Well, James, uh, can we get some consensus then on uh, on legal affairs and, and, and legal issues not being a contentious party issue? Well, I think we both um, believe in the rule of law as a concept and ideal, but probably have different uh, interpretations about actually what that means in, in, in practice. Now, uh, I mean, for a Liberal Democrat... This is actually really essential stuff to our that's basic to our to our DNA. I mean, it's in the name Liberal and Democrat, and it's really all about 
uh, power being held accountable through democracy and the rule of law and 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 through account through structures of 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 accountability and the constitution and i was very pleased that in our manifesto there was quite a big section called uh, defend rights promote justice and equalities um so linking rights justice and equalities one could one's reaction could be those are those are fall into the fine words category but what uh, how do how do you how do you put them into practice because almost any political party could uh, list those we have to actually improve on what we have now um, and this is where I think Antony and I depart, because actually in Brexit, we will be losing rights. We'll be losing rights quite significantly, not just the Charter of Fundamental Rights, which we never kind of fully quite signed up to anyway, but, um, but lots of basic rights, like the right of European citizens to live here, the right of our citizens to live in European countries. Lots and lots and lots of rights we will be losing through Brexit, or could be losing through Brexit, unless some magic deal is pulled off. Um, and it, so that's why you know we've really pushed strongly throughout our manifesto and throughout the whole campaign uh, on the absolute importance of you know, maintaining uh, a standard level of rights, you know, ideally through similar sort of relationships with Europe that we have at the moment, or as close as we can get to those. John Cooper, over to you, really. What's, uh, what's so good about the Labour manifesto as far as lawyers are concerned? Well, there are a number of things as far as lawyers are concerned that the manifesto touches upon immediately. Obviously, we'll talk in minutes about uh, legal aid uh, and uh, dealing with legal aid deserts and making sure people are properly represented and there are enough lawyers around for that to properly happen as far as access to justice is concerned. I want to talk to you about Brexit as well, because we're very conscious that we want to work hard with the legal profession in ensuring that there is work, not just work for the corporates, I might add, uh, but work for all manner of, of lawyer uh, once the, 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 Brexit, the Brexit kicks in. Uh, we are very, very keen, and this actually echoes the Bar Council manifesto for justice, so I'm sure the Bar Council will, will approve of this. We're very keen to review judicial appointment processes to ensure that the judiciary is more representative of society. So as far as lawyers are concerned, there will be far more of an opportunity under a Labour government for there to be a breadth of experience and not just perhaps the closed shop we've seen for many, many years. So for all those things, and hopefully I'll have the chance of briefly talking about our legal aid well, policies. Perhaps I could just bring you on to uh, legal aid. Um, I mean, you, you won't need me to remind you that um, the, the, the reduction in legal aid rates and eligibility is by no means a, uh, a, 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 a single issue, a single issue for a, a, a single political party across the board, both Labour and the Tories and indeed under the coalition. Legal aid rates have been reduced or slashed, as some practitioners would suggest, and indeed eligibility has as well. So uh, Labour's not exactly without some uh, culpability here, is it? Oh, look, I mean, absolutely. And one can look back at history and, 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 and trawl through history um, if one wants to do that. But what I want to talk about um, is what we're working on, for instance, on the Bar Commission, the Access to Justice Commission, which has been set up by the Labour Party, hopefully trying to get cross-party support, and a number of people are supporting it from all across uh, the parties. Uh, I'm uh, Lord Bucks, one of his advisors on that commission, so I can give you an idea of what's coming up, because what we say in our manifesto is that we will be very, very much guided uh, by what the Bark Commission come up with, and there are a number of interesting things there that, that, that are going to come out. For instance, we are going to ensure that there is uh, what we call um, a, an inspectorate. So let me explain what that is. Establish an independent inspectorate uh, to assess access to justice across 
the justice system. Now, this means to make sure that once standards are put in place, and we're reviewing standards of fairness and access to justice, once they're put in place, there's an independent inspectorate to make sure those standards are adhered to, independent of government. Now, what do I mean by their standards? For instance, legal aid deserts. There are swathes and swathes of sections of the community that, for instance, have no legal aid practitioners, high street solicitors, for instance, that can practice in housing law, for instance. We want to also sort out uh, the closure of courts. Over the, the year 2014 to 15, 146 courts closed and 86 uh, further courts are earmarked for closure. This is not access to justice. This is not giving people uh, easy uh, access to their courts for resolution, not just in crime, but in civil cases as well. Obviously, we're going to be uh, fighting the uh, all-night court uh, uh, proposals, which cut across uh, uh, challenging diversity and access to the profession by uh, men, and, and particularly uh, 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 women, um, particularly men and women that have childcare commitments. So our approach to access to justice and legal aid is not to give a blank check. That's the first thing to say, Jonathan. The second thing to say is that when the Bar Commission does report, you'll see a, a lot of changes and, and, and robust and and perhaps uh, exciting uh, proposals which ensure that there are no legal aid deserts, that the high street firms can function properly and are properly funded to do so without throwing money at them, and that there's a diverse uh, profession uh, which enables a diverse community to be served by that profession. Can I just come back on a point that Anthony made about taking account of the, uh, in relation to Brexit, of the vast amount of earnings that the legal sector brings to this country, not least through the city, um, uh, now, is are we going to see, and do you think um, lawyers should be, city lawyers should be you know, head of the queue when it comes to uh, pleas for special treatment in any sort of deal that's done post-Brexit with, uh, or an attempt to do a deal post-Brexit with uh, the European Union? I mean, there'll be, you know, bankers of uh, financial services are, are screaming for special treatment. Other sectors are screaming for special treatment. Do you think that lawyers should have special treatment in terms of practice rights and ability to uh, to move around the European Union? And if, if you do, do you think any government will, will pay attention to those pleadings? What's really important is enforceability of judgments. Uh, a very great deal of contentious legal work takes place in London. And one of several reasons is the ready enforceability of judgments. Uh, therefore, top of the list, so far as I'm concerned, will be ensuring the continued reciprocity of enforcement of judgments, uh, EU 27 judgments here, but our judgments there. But the ability of city law firms to base English qualified lawyers in continent in EU jurisdictions without having to requalify? That could be very difficult if there's, there's a problem about that. If UK lawyers were to face the sort of difficulty that American lawyers faced in Paris uh, in past times, life would be very difficult indeed. Please. I mean, James, you're not keen on Brexit full stop. Uh, well, we want to keep as many of the same and similar rights as, um, as we have now and uh, as many of the same and similar relationships and international agreements 
And that's essentially what we call a soft Brexit. So what we really mean by a soft Brexit is, OK, we'll be formally out of the political structure of Europe. We won't be sending MEPs to uh, Strasbourg, uh, uh, sit in the Parliament, or ministers to go to the Council of Ministers. But many of the reciprocal rights and obligations, international, the, and international understandings, will continue and must continue and should continue. And so if we can't stay in the EU... Soft Brexit must, must, must be the priority. As loath as I am to move away from Brexit, although I can hear a sigh of relief from our audience, a couple of other points that, have, that will be very much on the uh, legal affairs table post-general election, and that is at the top end of the legal profession, we have the likelihood that there will be a new Lord Chancellor. I mean, likewise, there will definitely be a new Lord Chief Justice. Um, perhaps we could just get some brief thoughts from you on what should be the, what is the modern what the appropriate modern relationship between a lord chancellor and the senior judiciary i mean that this is uh, something that's come under the spotlight but what should i mean apart from individuals more broadly what should be the relationship between a lord chancellor and the senior senior bench anthony uh, before it can be answered i think one has to decide whether the ministry of justice is going to remain in its present shape as a substantial spending department or whether those who say that they would like more of an old-fashioned Lord Chancellor should uh, lead us to uh, modify departmental responsibilities by removing some of the big spending items, notably prisons, out of the Ministry of Justice. Now, if you do that, you make it much more feasible to think in terms of a slightly different sort of person as Secretary of State for Justice. Remember, Lord Chancellor and Secretary of State for a big spending department are currently the same thing. But what about the age limit and the retirement age for the senior bench? Uh, some very creditable candidates for the post of Lord Chief have been uh, ruled out on the grounds that uh, uh, they would be too old. I think that cut-off date is not right. I think it's cut out two people, Heather Hallett and Brian Leveson, both of whom in different ways would have been quite excellent. Uh, perhaps we could just get your view on this, John Cooper, as well. I mean, the point about um, uh, the role of the Lord Chancellor and uh, that person's uh, relationship with the senior judiciary is one that arguably uh, has been created again by Labour because uh, it was a Labour Lord Chancellor that uh, uh, created the split between the uh, the traditional role and uh, that of Justice Secretary. Do you, I mean, do you think, you know, a decade on or indeed maybe a bit longer now, that that's, that, that split is working? I mean, how do you feel that the uh, the relationship between the Lord Chancellor and, uh, and the senior judiciary should uh, should work? Well, I don't think the split uh, has worked. It was it was a brave uh, experiment, uh, but uh, certainly uh, many of the more recent Lord Chancellors we've had or Justice Secretaries have been absolute disasters. There's no doubt in my mind uh, 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 that uh, Grayling was a disaster, Truss was a disaster, um, and after the next uh, election, in a week or so's time, hopefully we'll have a Labour uh, Justice Secretary who will know a little more about the law than Truss and Grayling knew. 
utter disaster. Their relationships with uh, senior and respected members of the judiciary, such as the Lord Chief Justice, has been appalling. It is so rare to find a Lord Chief Justice, such as uh, the Lord Chief Justice Thomas, uh, recently, actually criticising the Justice Secretary or the Lord Chancellor for their lack of support of the judiciary. It's the, ju- it's the Justice Secretary, the Lord Chancellor's position to, where it's appropriate, support the judiciary and support their independence. We have some of the best judiciary in the the world, and when they're left hung out to dry by members of government, for instance, like Liz Truss, without any support, that is reprehensible. So in that respect, it hasn't worked. And, and although this is not particularly a policy within the Labour manifesto, but you're asking me what my, what my view is, uh, well, my view is, given that it's not worked, we at least need to make sure that people that take the responsibility have some knowledge of the, of, of the, the legal system, uh, rather than seeing it as just another stepping stone, perhaps, to more ministerial responsibilities. James. Uh, perhaps very briefly, if you wouldn't mind, um, both well, the, the, the former coalition government mm-hmm. inherited the uh, structure that, that, that Labour put in place of merging, as Anthony has pointed out, Lord Chancellor with Secretary of State for Justice. In, an, in, in your ideal world, in a, in a, in a Lib Dem government, would, uh, would those two jobs be separated? Well, I sort of thought we'd kind of nailed this issue on the head back with the constitutional format, which we thought all parties signed up to at the time. And it may not be sort of perfect, but uh, it does, but it does provide a basis of of, of a kind of separation between uh, the legal aspects of the world and the uh, political aspects of the world, uh, and very clear duties on the lead, on the Lord Chancellor to be a defend to be a defender of the judiciary, an independent judiciary. Uh, and to be their voice uh, in within the executive, um, and I would be reluctant to kind of take a step backwards. Um, the problem has occurred because what we've seen is increasingly ambitious career politicians with no legal knowledge or background being parachuted into the world of Secretary of State for Justice, um, and that has caused some issues, and that's been 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 recognised. But the convention, I mean, the understanding when the Act was originally passed was that it would be a senior lawyer within the party, and with, you know, obviously either in the Commons or the Lords, who would be appointed to that role, and that there was always the expectation. And actually, it's kind of written into the legislation that they should have you know, relevant knowledge. Um, and it, it, we, so we've we've kind of been defined that that act really in in recent appointments, and and. Um, uh, and I think actually we should just stick with that. One of the more recent points that's emerged from the manifesto are the controversial proposals by the Conservatives to, if not ditch the serious fraud office, at least wrap up its responsibilities under the new, the newer National Crime Agency. Um, John Cooper, I think you've got some views on that. I've got some very strong views, and they're views that are actually represented by many senior members across the profession. Stephen Parkinson, for instance, of Kingsley Napoli, refers to it as uh, uh, going to cause organisational paralysis. David McCluskey, a partner with Taylor Wessing, says that uh, the UK's reputation as a bastion of the rule of law will be seriously harmed by its demise. It's an appalling suggestion, and it's coming at a time when the Serious Fraud Office are making a great deal of progress in things like deferred prosecution agreements. 
uh, 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 vicarious liability for companies, companies failing to prevent a range of offences. All these things are coming through now. And one final point, because there are many points I could make, but this is an important one, on accountability. Uh, the NCA, which apparently is going to absorb the Serious Fraud Office, is a non-ministerial government a department and reports to the Home Office. The Serious Fraud Office is part of the government legal service, but is independent of the executive. It seems that the independence of the whole thing is going to be up in the air as well. Uh, and this is a very, very concerning development, and one I think we're looking forward to Theresa May having another change of mind. I, I, uh, I have to say that um, having lawyers... Discussing politics is uh, is always uh, a far more uh, civilized affair than sometimes having politicians <laughs> discussing politics. Uh, thank you to thanks to you all, uh, Anthony Spate, John Cooper, and James Sandback. And now over to Linda Jung, who will interview this week's Lawyer of the Week from Times Law. It's Jonathan Fisher QC who acted for the Serious Fraud Office in a recent victory regarding legal professional privilege. They needed good news at the fraud office, as the Conservative Party is mooting, winding them up. With me is Jonathan Fisher QC, a barrister at Brightline Law and Redline Chambers. Jonathan, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Uh, Jonathan led the team for the serious fraud office in the High Court, and Mrs Justice Andrews ruled that the legal privilege does not apply to information which mining company ANRC's internal investigation had gathered into alleged corruption in the company. Jonathan, you said that one of the challenges in this case was that you had to sort out the facts in this case first. Were they particularly complex in this case? Well, Linda, yes, they were. Um, They go back to December of 2010, really, when the company received an email containing allegations of corruption and uh, alleged financial wrongdoing within one of its uh, subsidiaries. And it instructed solicitors to investigate the allegations. And then in August of 2011... The Serious Fraud Office contacted the company, stating that it was not going to carry out a criminal investigation at that time, but it indicated it was content for the company to continue with its investigation and then report back to the SFO. And that happened between September and March, September 2011 and March 2013. There were over 30 meetings and discussions between the company and, uh, and its solicitors and the SFO. And during that time, the solicitors and company repeatedly assured the SFO that the company was committed to engaging openly with the SFO and giving them its full cooperation. And uh, the company had undertaken to act transparently and to be full and frank with the SFO. In the event, uh, when the SFO sought access to information and evidence, such as the witness statements which had been generated by the company during its internal investigation, the company resisted uh, that access uh, on the basis that uh, the company said the material was legally privileged. Now, of course, in a case where uh, privilege is raised, a careful examination always needs to be undertaken because the boundaries of legal privilege are not never easy to determine. Okay. Uh, so what did the court decide in this case? Well, the boundaries the, were? Yes, the court, uh, again, a complicated ruling, but the court decided that with respect to litigation privilege, the general trend had been towards strictly confining rather than extending its ambit. And applying that rationale, uh, the court came to the view that if a document was created with the express purpose of showing it to uh, an adversary uh, with the intention of uh, uh, the adversary understanding that, um, it wouldn't be subject to litigation privilege. 
And uh, with respect to legal advisory privilege, the judge held on the facts of the case that there was no evidence that any of the persons interviewed had been authorised to seek and receive legal advice on the company's behalf, uh, and therefore the communications between those individuals and the solicitors uh, were not uh, uh, privileged uh, in in that way. Um, The judge added that where the party asserting privilege is a corporate entity, uh, legal advisory privilege attached only to communications between the lawyer and those individuals who were authorised to obtain legal advice on that entity's behalf. And communications between solicitors and employees, uh, however senior in the corporate hierarchy, who did not fall within that description, would not be subject to uh, legal advisory privilege. And what effect did this decision have on companies that have to undertake similar investigations? Yes, um, well... Look, I think the key thing, Linda, is this. Um, the key lesson, really, for, is for companies who are conducting a dialogue with the Serious Fraud Office, they really must ensure that uh, there is clarity on both sides regarding the terms on which that dialogue is being conducted. So if the company commits to a transparent dialogue, which is uh, said to be and expressed to be full and frank, then it needs to recognise that uh, following this decision, uh, the uh, legal privilege uh, that their legal privilege does not arise in those circumstances. And what impact does this decision have on the SFO? Well, um, in terms of the SFO, of course, it, its its future is under under question at the moment. Um, I, I, it's uh, uh, going to be interesting to see how that uh, uh, develops. Um, but certainly, I, I mean, if you're if you're asking for my thoughts on uh, whether or not this serious fraud office should survive, um, then certainly I could uh, give you a number of reasons why it should. Yes, please go ahead. Well, I, I mean, splitting the investigation, the legal and forensic accounting resource in these types of cases um, is a retrograde step because... The issues arising in these investigations are very complex and they need legal and accounting input uh, to run alongside the investigatory input at an early stage. You know, the SFO is now achieving greater success than it has in the past under David Green's leadership. And, of course, there have been setbacks. Of course, there are uh, occasions when, if you have an independent trial process, you're going to have a jury acquittal. Um, but um, that that's the way the system works. The National Crime Agency is heavily focused on combating organised crime, such as drug trafficking, people trafficking. Uh, and when it looks at uh, fraud, the emphasis is very much on organised crime, uh, becoming engaged in fraud. That's not a criticism. Um, but what it's uh, not a specialist in is handling commercial fraud and corporate corruption. Jonathan, thank you very much. Thank you all very much for taking part and thanks to everyone for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode.